Welcome back, everybody, to the Self Storage Income Podcast. We have an incredible episode lined up for you guys today. But before we get to that, we have to give a huge shout out to our sponsors, Janus International, Tenant Inc., and Live Oak Bank. These are partners who we've specifically chosen for their expertise in the self-storage industry. Whether you're looking to rehab a facility, develop a facility, Janus has some of the most incredible and industry-leading solutions for you to implement at your facility, whether that's their, their door systems, their hallway systems, their no-key technology, their keyless access entry systems. They are hands down one of the best resources in the industry for you to rehab a facility and to develop a facility that meets today's standards. Then we've got Live Oak Bank. Live Oak Bank is yet again another amazing partner that we've wanted to have as our sponsor for this podcast. The work that they do and have done in the self-storage industry is just incredible and they continue to do this every single day. They live in the storage industry and provide some of the best and most innovative financing solutions for you to be able to get into self-storage. Be sure to check them out, get a hold of Terry and uh, get your financing straight, get it right. And these guys are the best in the industry. Then we've got Tenant Inc all your property management needs tied into one solution. All of Tenant Inc.'s solutions underneath the Tenant Inc. umbrella, whether that's property management or that's tenant management, whatever that looks like, they've got a slew of amazing solutions for you guys to implement at your facility, to help streamline management, to help you gain control and access of all your data and you're not giving that data to your competitors who are, are offering the same type of software that doesn't even come close to what Tenant Inc. actually offers you. Again, you own that data, which is just huge, huge, huge and innovative for the self-storage industry. Be sure to get at Tenant Inc. Check out all the links in the show notes for our sponsors. Get at them, get your facility on the right track and get out there and crush it. With that said, let's get to the episode. Looking to create wealth and income through high cash flowing real estate? Self-storage is the fastest growing and the newest real estate asset that has outperformed all others. What's its secret? I'm AJ Osborne, and with over a million square feet that we have built, acquired, expanded, and even converted big box stores from small third-tier markets to large 100-plus thousand square foot facilities, we have seen it all. This is the podcast that we're going to discuss and bring on the best investors and operators in the nation to show you how to create wealth and income with self-storage. Welcome to Self-Storage Income. As you know, AJ is the host of the Self-Storage Income podcast. He's been a very successful uh, self-storage operator. Um, and he's a member of Store Local, and so please help me welcome Mr. AJ Osborne, everybody. Thanks. All right. Well, first of all, once again, thanks everybody for coming. This is going to be a great conference. We have a good lineup of speakers and everything, and I wanted to really kick the conference off on talking about self-storage as an asset overall. Um, Self-storage, as you all know, that's why you're here, has become immensely popular. And this happened in a very short period of time. Uh, the name of the game has changed dramatically in this asset class and also dramatically in real estate as a whole. Commercial real estate has had a 
very interesting last 15 years, we can put it that way. And uh, amongst these market cycles and the turmoil between the housing crash, between the retail apocalypse, between COVID decimating office space and hotels, as well as other different kinds of uh, commercial real estate that have uh, required people to gather. Really, self-storage rose from the ashes of this crisis. And it did so in a very intriguing way. And there was a lot of reasons why self-storage as an industry took so long to really come about. And uh, why self-storage for a long time, not a lot of people knew about it, but the investing community pretty much avoided it. It was not a second-class citizen or asset. It was worse than that. It was, at best, a junkyard. Now, how did a junkyard go from being something nobody wanted to touch and people looked down upon to being the number one performing real estate asset and the one that institutions, individual investors, and everybody alike wants to get their hands on? It's a staple of diversified income producing property right now, and now is considered to be one of the safest real estate assets on the market, which is intriguing because just 20 years ago, there was a huge percentage of real estate investors that believed self-storage was a fad, that it wouldn't even be around. Now, it's easy to look back and judge and say, that makes no sense, right? And as much as I like to look back and say, of course, we all knew it was going to be what it was going to be. And of course, we knew the performance was going to be incredible. Um, hindsight's 2020, and that's not really how it works. Um, so I kind of want to walk down a little bit of memory lane, and we're going to talk about these drivers. And this should set up more of the tone for the conference. Um, a lot of people talk about self-storage, right? But a lot of people, I think, are confused on how to move forward in this investment asset class. They're confused Am I late to the party? Is it overhyped? Is it on and on and on and on, right? And we want to get a really good grip. So not only do you have the information on how to purchase, buy, operate, but also understand the future and how to navigate these changes that have come. Because the changes are dramatic. But within these changes, therein lies all the opportunity that so many of us have found in self-storage. Okay, so. Not this facility, but really my first encounter with a storage facility was in the really early 2000s. I was young and I was looking for um, investment properties because I don't know if any of you remember in the early 2000s, but everybody was becoming millionaires on housing and small multifamily. It was the thing to do. Everybody was doing it. I had friends that somehow I didn't even understand. I'm like, you are just as poor as I am, and yet you're buying these duplexes. You're making all this money, and they're showing me how much money they're worth. And I'm sitting there looking at all these properties, all my friends getting rich, right? Thinking, I'm an idiot. We live in this teeny apartment above an auto body garage. My wife is working at a place called New Fong's Chinese Restaurant, and I was an insurance salesman, which meant her tips were double what I made and commission. So, and it was for the company uh, Aflac, the one with the duck. And my dad tells me, hey, I bought a storage facility that's out in the middle of nowhere, because I went to school in the middle of nowhere in Eastern Idaho. Um, 
It's close to the base of the Tetons in Yellowstone. That's the only reason people know about it. And he's like, I bought this storage facility with a partner out there. It's a little thing out in the middle of nowhere. And he's like, you should go check it out. And you can put um, your things from college in a unit when you come home, like your moped. And I'm like, because that's what I drove, moped. It was cool. Um, but so I'm like, all right, let's do this. So I went there, and I'm literally looking around. I'm looking at this facility. And I'm like, you mean people put their crap in here and pay you? I was like, this doesn't make any sense at all. And two, I was perplexed also because I'm like, all right, Dad, this is great, but nobody becomes a millionaire in this junk thing. That's not how it works. You make all the money in single-family houses and multifamily. Everybody knows that, right? This is just a truth, inevitable truth. And he's like, hold on, wait, wait, wait. You've got to see the P&L. So we were out, and we were with my uh, wife, and me, my dad, and my mom were sitting there. And me and my dad, they were, they were all talking, discussing things. My brothers and such were playing around. And we're looking over these P&Ls. And I was shocked at the simplicity of them. But there was also one thing that really stood out in my mind on this teeny storage facility out in the middle of nowhere. And that was the one thing that the other asset classes never showed. And that was cash flow. And being an insurance guy, being raised in a family, so my father was an insurance salesman. That's what we did. We sold insurance. We got commission. Cash flow is everything. It's all that matters. If I don't sell something, I don't get paid, right? I never had a normal income like a normal human being. I was always running. I call it the treadmill. I got to sell. I got to sell. I got to sell, right? Created a very limited mindset, in fact, because it was, we can't, we can't live on our money because we need to save all of it because we don't know when a client's gonna leave and when our income's gonna be decimated. So me and my wife, we lived on 30% of our income for a very long time. And so self-storage became a way that I looked and I said, oh, this is income that we could get to offset this risky income of our, our sales and our commissions. So if a big client of mine leaves, maybe we'd have something to fall back on and you know, knife times got too tough. So, we went and uh, there was a broker that was up in this region. And he called us up and said, hey, I've got a facility up in the middle of nowhere, right? A place called Bonners Ferry, Idaho. It's actually about an hour and 45 minutes north of here. Even if you look at like, so if you go to Google Maps or a lot of you go onto Radius, right? The city shows no facilities in the city. It's not true. There's actually facilities there. One of them, which we owned at the time. And we flew up there to look at it and this was it. And uh, there was really nothing there. It was a few buildings and a bunch of doors, right? We're talking about something in a few hundred thousand range. And uh, there was no office. It was just gravel open, no fences, no nothing. But the cash flow was good and strong. It was in a, not a third tier market, probably not even a fourth tier market. I don't know if there's a 10th tier market, but it's there. And so the seller didn't have a lot of options which was good because back then, I don't know, for those of you that have been in storage for a long time, there, there wasn't a lot of banking opportunities. Banks didn't like this asset class. So my dad's like, let's buy this one, right? And we can do this together. We can be our partners. And I'm like, okay, I like the cash flow. So let's do it. So we picked up this one. Then we picked up three or four small other storage facilities. And same thing, out in the middle of nowhere, there were heavy cash flow. 
Um, and that was basically the name of the game. So the key was though here, after we're getting this, the cash flow is heavy, made a lot of sense for us. We could contract out with somebody local to run it, manage it. We didn't live anywhere near it, right? So I I'm from Boise. So Bonner's Ferry to Boise is like nine hours away. It's not close. And uh, so it's not like we were running it or checking in on it. So we hired people elsewhere. And all these small facilities that we bought, all three of them, were very far away in Oregon and Washington, away from Boise. We contracted out with somebody else. And it, it was really like, this is weird to me because it's almost too good to be true. Where's the catch? And we found the catch when uh, that original facility that my dad had bought, we found the manager that we'd hired, um, how can I put this nicely? He sucked. And uh, occupancy had dropped down to like 50%. And we couldn't get up, we couldn't figure out what they were doing. And therein lied the catch. These things weren't that easy to manage. We thought, there's no toilets. This has gotta be super easy, right? And it wasn't like that, it wasn't like that at all. So we brought in um, my uh, third partner, who was my brother-in-law. And he is an accountant. Uh, by trade. And so we brought him in and said, organize this, right? Just this, just, just, just do it. Just organize this, really help us make this work. Because you got to understand, like me and my dad, we're sales guys. We want to get the deal done. We want to make the money. We want to do all that stuff, right? But this thing that had just been thrown into our laps out in the middle of nowhere was taking us away all of a sudden from sales, that I could go out and sell a client, make $100,000, $150,000 a year, and now I gotta worry about these little small storage facilities. So therein lied the catch. It was manage intensive, and we didn't have a lot of options. So that's kinda how we started, and that's how self-storage started. Nobody really knew what to do with them, how to manage them, it was very mom and pop. There was demand, there was necessity, there wasn't a whole lot of expertise, and to be frank, they were kind of sketchy, right? Now, why self-storage and why self-storage income? Now, this story is a little different. Sales is one of the best businesses in the world. I loved it. I was in control of my own income. I was in control of my own time. I could theoretically make as much as I ever wanted. There was also a huge downside to it. I could make however much theoretically I wanted as long as I worked that equivalent amount, which turns out to be theoretically impossible to just keep working endlessly. And I had no control over that revenue. Our income fluctuated so greatly. And I thought, well, we're diversified because I have lots of clients and I don't have a boss. You know what that really meant? I had lots of bosses and lots of them fired me and I had to go out and find new bosses to work for. So this idea that I had that insurance sales was financial freedom turned out to be more like a financial slave. And this idea that I didn't have a boss turned out to not be true at all on weekends, on vacations, on anything. If anyone from any one of the organizations that we were working with a representative call, we had to pick up the phone, we had to answer, it didn't matter night or day, and if we didn't, we were fired. This became what I lovingly referred to as the treadmill. And really, the treadmill was a good treadmill. It's not like I'm complaining, okay? We made a lot of money. 
we were essentially rich. But that's when I determined something that was very, very important and life-changing. There's a difference between rich and wealthy. They're not the same thing. Rich people make a lot of money, and this can be anybody. This could be salespeople, doctors, this could be lawyers, this could be anybody. This could be brokers, right? Any of these people that make a good income off their work, they're rich. But wealthy, they were different. The wealthy didn't need to earn money. They didn't need their time to be associated like we did with that income. So they could compound their money. And that was a very important difference that we didn't have. We could not compound our money, we couldn't grow, and it was two steps forward, one step back, all the time. And I realized, wow, this is no difference than a normal W-2, where we're kind of a slave demand, we're running nonstop, and to be honest, I think it was starting to kill both me and my father. We had gained a lot of success, it was great, and I loved it, but I also realized something else. I think I just more like working with my dad. Right? I don't know if any of you guys like that, but he's my best friend, he was my partner, everything. so we, we just like working together. It didn't matter what we did, but this constant treadmill was killing, and I knew something had to change. But it's really hard to say no to money. So we were living life at the top. We had sold previously, a few years prior, our little brokerage firm to a national, big national firm, um, probably won't say their name. Um, and uh, we were, had the golden handcuffs, right? And we were contracted to work with them. They paid us really, really good income. So we, we stuck it out, right? This is wonderful. And I don't want to leave this income thing. And uh, we had a good life. Uh, we were building our real estate portfolio and everything, but time is limited. It's really, really limited. And the problem is we don't know how limited it is. So this is basically the two days before this. And uh, I went from what I felt was more like the top to rock bottom very, very quickly. Um, within roughly a week, I'd gone from being completely normal, healthy, to all of a sudden my legs not working, not knowing what was happening or what was going on, and I hit rock bottom. I became paralyzed from head to toe, basically overnight, stuck on life support. Um, couldn't move, couldn't do anything. We tried to talk through blinking and some, through some other measures. And uh, I was fired in the hospital from my great paying job. And uh, the hospital's where I stayed. Um, don't know if you, I don't think you can see this video, but all of a sudden I had to relearn how to do everything. I had to relearn how to eat. Um, I had to relearn how to move. I had to relearn how to walk. And everything was, little things were amazing. Yay! 32-year-old baby. <laughs> so, yep, it was really, really good. I did a good job. Everybody claps. Um, and uh, this is how, how, how things went for a long time. After I left the hospital, they took me home, paralyzed at home, put me in bed, where my wife uh, took care of me, my four kids. My brother moved in to help me to take care of me and move me around and, and get the things that I needed to uh, get done and help my wife. All of a sudden, my income was gone. I'd lost this reputable, real job, and uh, my life kind of came all crashing down around, all at once. And I realized at 32, the treadmill that I'd been on stopped. My time stopped. 
and it almost stopped for good. And that was a pretty big eye-opener for me. So the key thing was that I realized I lost my job, but I didn't lose my income. We had these storage facilities that could pay me. We didn't have to sell my house. We didn't go bankrupt, right? My kids didn't have to be moved around. My wife could take care of me in our own home, and she didn't have to go get a job. She could take care of me and our four kids. I was sitting in the hospital one day, and I'm looking out the window, and I was, you know, all by myself in the hospital, and the snow's falling down. I went in there when it was warm, as you saw from the pictures. We were, I was actually out planting trees uh, the day before I went into the hospital. And uh, that was like the last time that I was really outside in any normal way. They took me outside in my wheelchair, hooked to all these machines, which was really nice. My wife forced me, you gotta get them outside of this hospital. But I'm sitting there, the snow's falling, and I'm so excited because the next day was Christmas and I was gonna get to see my kids. And I was gonna get to go home in my own home and watch my kids open their presents. And I was so excited, I couldn't sleep. I laid in my hospital bed, looked out of the window at the snow falling, and that's when it dawned on me. I was not concerned that my kids weren't gonna get Christmas presents. I wasn't concerned that this house that we lived in, we were gonna have to move out of after I got out of the hospital. I had none of those kind of concerns. None of those things were registering me. I could focus on myself, on my family. I could spend time with my children, which became much more valuable to me after this incident happened. Everything, every little thing became that much more intense, that much, that's much more special. That would have changed if I did not have income from self-storage. That would not have been the same. I would have been a mess in disarray. My sales job's not one that you can leave for four years and then go back into and pick it up. I lost my job. I'd have to start from scratch all over. I'd have to build commissions again. I didn't have money. What was I gonna do? Self-storage income, to me, saved my family's financial life, probably our mental health and everything else, and probably is one of the biggest contributors to why I've gotten better and recovered in the way that I have over the last four years. We could focus on me, and I didn't have that kind of stress. So, sitting there in the hospital, I said, oh, I'm gonna start up a little blog, self-storage income. And that's why self-storage income is here. That's why it's important. That's why it's important to me, and that's why I love this asset class so much. And I hope while you guys are here, that you can take in everything that this conference has to offer you, and that you guys can apply it into your life to improve not only your life, but your family's life and harness back that time that is so important. So understanding though for you guys how to move forward in storage, it's first important to know how we got here. This is the big question, okay? There was a lot of little light bulbs as we were stumbling around in these junkyards trying to figure out what to do that were popping up. And because I was a consultant, I worked with companies, we did the manage their health benefits, I had a lot of exposure to C-suite and uh, the back-end financials and things that were going on in businesses and lots of industries. I saw industries that fell, that succeed, were successful during 2008. I could see C-suites that were doing good, how they were scaling, and I could ask a lot of questions. It was like peering into the machine of all these different business models which turned out to be the biggest education I could ever have on economics, business, and figured out how I could apply that 
over into self-storage. And some of these light bulbs that were going on were the misconception of storage. So most people think storage, we have storage, and that's because storage, we have hoarders in the United States, and we hoard. Our parents would never do such a thing. Our grandparents would never, ever do this. We are, you know, we've all become hoarders. Now, it's not that it's totally untrue, but it's actually a big takeaway from the real reason self-storage is successful and the real reason that self-storage will be successful in the future. And you cannot have that false narrative to understand the value of this asset class or it will destroy you being able to capitalize on the opportunity. First is consumption. It's not necessarily that we consume more, it's that we have the ability to consume more with the same dollar. It's not that your grandparents were these amazing frugal people. A dollar just didn't go the same way. They didn't have access to anything, right? They, their dollar had to go towards food and very basic things. It's not that they wouldn't spent it on a motorcycle or anything else like that. They just couldn't. And two, for most of America, if they did, where are they supposed to get it? It's not like they had Walmart they could just drive over to. It's not like Amazon shipped it to their house. You want to make, you want a bike? You want something? You got to have like Bob down the road make it. And then it's going to cost you a month worth of salary, right? It's not that we're just inherently hoarders or anything. It's just consumption has fundamentally changed through the economy of the United States and the rest of the world. The next thing is regulation. When I grew up, we, growing up in Idaho, everything was very rural. I spent most of my summers on our family farms working, right? That was my vacation. That was actually what I loved to do. I loved it. I loved getting up early in the morning, going help them family farm. And then we would come home and we'd come back to Boise, which was considered at the time the big city, and it was. I mean, there was probably 200,000 people in the entire area, maybe 80,000 in general. But that was the metropolis for Idaho, right, back in the day. That was huge. And we could do whatever we wanted on it, right? Farmers, they can put in whatever you want. You could build a shed, you could build anything you wanted. We had a shop behind our house. You wanted to build something, you could. That's not how the world works anymore. We have HOAs, we have government regulations that will just not let you expand your house. You can't build a shop on the side and you definitely can't park that RV out front. That's against the HOA rules. Cities don't wanna see that. So we have this two hit right off the bat. Our ability to do more with the same dollar expanded dramatically in life-changing, amazing ways that helped the world out in so many ways. On top of that, because of this, cities really started to crack down and said, we need good environments. Regulation started to really hamper the ability for people just to have stuff. Tied in with that, rising cost of real estate. Consumption going up, and I don't mean that in a bad way, I mean that in general, real estate, or excuse me, price of consumption going down, real estate prices going up, regulation layered over on the top of it, and we had a space crisis. Now, overlay that with technology and the revolution of distributed workforce. So work has been completely decentralized within the United States. You don't need to all be in a single office anymore. Technology gives us the ability to work from anywhere we want to. We can move around, right? And two, it also gave the ability for companies to start shipping and moving products around. That meant 
okay, now we have to have other locations, we have supply chain problems, because we can send things to your home instead of a retail store. So now I don't need to be in Walmart, I can be on Amazon or my own website, now I just gotta figure out how to get my products to these people's houses. And as an individual, I can start my own company up out of my garage or storage facility, hold the inventory there, and fulfill orders. And these companies started popping up everywhere. Pharmaceutical companies started needing space, climate-controlled space, to put inventory and product to distribute their product, medical equipment, on and on and on and on and on. Work technology uh, disrupted the consumers and also your traditional workspace. And that just went like crazy during COVID. And these fundamental things right here, these three things, they're not changing. We're not going back to where you guys can just park RVs or whatever you want out in front of your house or build a shop on the side. Technology is not rolling back. These are all moving forward, and they're moving forward fast. Now, this is where self-storage moved. Being in the space that it was, I'm going to just keep referring it to it as previous 2000, the junkyard, okay? It was on the low end of uh, quantity and growth. The question is, is where is it now? And we're going to talk a little more about this, but right now it's in a maturing stage. You know, I like to think of self-storage as probably a college student at this point. And the reason we know this is because he's partying, right? We can see it. We can feel it. Self-storage is partying right now. It's having a moment. And so it's right there. It's no longer a teenager. It's not a child, but it's not fully grown. It's not an adult, but it's changed into something that it wasn't before and it's having its moment. Self-storage construction spending by year. As these things have changed, a few things changed within our economic system. After the 2008 crisis, everyone started to relook at a lot of fundamental investing strategies. Now, there's a few companies and a few systems that really made the biggest impact here. And the two parts that I, I, I'm going to talk about, but we got to clear it up here real quick just to, to understand this, is financial models, okay, and management. You'll remember my previous point on pain points, right? These two things were like dams that held back capital, capital in the traditional system, And we have this ginormous dam that was holding back this massive capital. And after 2008, the dam broke. And the capital came flooding in. Cap rates started to plummet. Construction spending skyrocketed. And more and more people and more and more capital started pouring into this industry. Annual sales volume. Look at this chart. This blows me away, right? Okay, right there, that's the billion dollar mark. And I, I know a lot of people in this room right now looking at that chart, they know exactly who that was right there in 2006. They know. They know when that billion dollar sales were going on. It was shockingly absurd. Prior to this, when you know, we were getting started in storage down here, it was just nothing. The sales volume of storage was nothing. Nobody was buying them. Nobody wanted them. They were junkyards. What do you do with them, right? And then a lot of people found something to do with them. The percentage of 
renters in the self-storage space changed. 2005 to 2020, it's gone up. Now this may not seem a lot, right? You may say, okay, well that's 9% to almost 11%. That's not a ton. That's almost a 20% increase. That's a lot of people in the United States. That's a big change. 20% increase in people needing to utilize this asset class? All of a sudden people knew what it was thanks to things like storage wars, right? A lot of people were like me when you first came into that storage facility and looked at it, looked at the doors, and I'm like, what the heck is this? What are we supposed to do with this thing? I just put my stuff in there and put a lock on it and walk away and I send you a bill or I send you a check? They didn't know what to do with it. Storage wars came out and all of a sudden people are like, oh, hey, you can actually buy stuff at auction. Look at these things. These are nice buildings. People started to recognize the industry and the asset class. And they really started to recognize the performance. So this is the formula that essentially broke the dams of capital and self-storage. Remember my conundrum right at the first, management. Management is not just simply, it's not an ATM as a lot of people like to think. Not. You have people moving around. In fact, it's way more correlated to a retail center for large storage facilities than anything else. You got 120,000 square feet like facilities we do. We have people just coming in, in and out every single day, logistically, right? We're selling products, upends, we have showrooms, right? Well, if I can't manage this, if I got $10 million and I wanna go into, what am I supposed to do? Buy it, then what do I do with it? Management companies started to come out, but principally extra space, okay? Extra space came into this area and was one of the first REITs that really said, we're going to really get into third-party management. And they didn't really so much do it to make money as they did it to purely get acquisition targets, data, and a lot of other stuff. Um, but they allowed for big companies to come in and deploy their capital and give somebody else the problems. The next thing that happened is financial models. Prior to 2008, this industry was so new that Wall Street's models had never seen a credit crisis and seen this asset class go through one. In fact, a lot of people honestly questioned whether it would even survive because there is no way that somebody was gonna pay $50 on their storage unit and default on their mortgage. That's absurd, right? Well, economics 101, that actually makes a lot of sense because one's $1,200 and the other one's 50. I'm getting rid of the $1,200, but nobody knew. 2008, that was tested. And self-storage was really run through the grinder. And it came out best in class. It was the top performing asset. And everybody turned their heads and was like, well, what's going on? The next thing was technology. This is important in self-storage because of the management issue. Sites that aren't located near you. We had new technology, property management systems, things coming in that would allow people to operate more efficiently, better market, and to run that facility from afar to get data, everything else. This allowed institutions to finally go, we're ready, we're in it. Wall Street came into play. And that was a ginormous change, obviously, for this asset class. Now, self-storage space owned. This is an interesting one because it changes a lot. But essentially here, we have the six 
public companies. We have top operators. And right now, we're almost at about a 50% mark between really, really big guys, small guys. But the REITs only make up 16% of the market. Now, this has changed dramatically. When I got in, it was something like 90% of the entire self-storage industry was owned by mom and pops. All this shows and what this shows is we're going through a consolidation phase right now in self-storage, okay? So as the self-storage industry is consolidated due to the three things that we mentioned, larger companies can deploy capital and they can deploy different strategies like roll-ups, okay? We call them roll-ups, roll-ups in private equity, right? Um, I, I found out what a roll-up was in insurance, meaning I could take a small little insurance brokerage firm that was maybe a one-man shop, and I could buy them for, let's say, one and a half times, then I could bring them in, put them in technology, right, run it in our system, and all of a sudden that one and a half times is now worth six times. I didn't do anything. Didn't increase it, didn't do anything. Essentially, all I did was buy it. It's this weird voodoo economic magic that's called roll-ups. You roll it up into a bigger one, you're buying it at a lower multiple, it comes up and it's worth more and instant equity is created. We call this portfolio effect in real estate, right? And they could buy these at higher cap rates, they'd roll them up, they'd immediately increase the value of that asset solely by being a part of their overall portfolio. This is a really big change and this got really, really hot because they had the technology and the management to back it up. We could operate at scale across the nation. Now we can diversify. We can try and do all sorts of new things. And this led to a whole new class and breed over the last 15 years of self-storage operators. So I have this little slide. We talk about then and now. And I remember it was about eight years ago. I'm in Florida. I was opening up a gym of all things in Florida, right? Actually had one here, we sold them all off. But um, I'm opening it up, I'm driving by down this road and I'd, I'd driven down the same road right in uh, Estero, Florida, right above Naples, multiple times. And I thought while I was sitting at the gym, I was like, let's see what storage facilities around. If we're gonna own a gym, we might as well own a storage facility, right? So I started looking around to see what we could do and I found, oh, there was one on the drive, right where I go every single day. Well, that, was, I, that was crazy because I'd never seen one before. So I'm like, all right, let's get back in the car and let's go see it. So we drive by and I'm like, it's got to be right around here somewhere. And I'm like, I can't see it. All, we have this hotel. We have this shopping center, right? We have this housing complex. I can't figure out where it was. Turns out that hotel was actually a storage facility. It was a five-story, incredibly beautiful building that I thought was a hotel because it was so high-end in the coastal area of Florida. I was shocked. I'm like, you gotta, we gotta see this, right? Little Idaho boy here. We got like, let's go see this. So we go run in, I'm geeking out over the storage stuff. And I'm asking the manager, like, when did you open this thing? I've never seen anything like this in my life. And then he told me what they were getting for rates. And, and this may have been longer, this, yeah, I forget. I had, I had a four year period of paralyzation there that I, kind of life went away. This is like 10 years ago. Uh, so this was a long time ago. And um, I went in and talked to him and he was getting, uh, I think it was $2 a square foot a month in rent off this building. That was shocking to me. We were getting like 40 cents a square foot in rent. And I'm like, people pay this? 
And he was like, yeah, let me show you around. It had all these amenities. It was just incredible. It was all indoor climate controlled. And I thought, why does everybody need climate controlled? This doesn't even make sense, right? Like, where's your drive up doors? And that was one of the, it was actually featured in the front of Wall Street, Street Journal like four months later. And it, the title was, self, I think it was self-storage is changed, right? And it, they, we started to see these different types of assets. The reason being was because this regulation that was going on. So what happened is regulation started to move into storage. You want to build, you got to make it look nice. It's got to be high end and you got to look around, which also caused people to have to pay more for land. They had to pay more lot, and that started to raise up rents. But because of the regulation, everything else it was there. The demand was there. People paid it. They went in and you had these astronomical valuations of self-storage. When we first got into it, I remember our, large, uh, our first large facility. So we had the, the first three, three facilities, and I, and I mentioned this actually to our group yesterday. We drove, it was um, $3 million, and it was an eight and a half cap. Occupancy was a little low, and to be honest, I was kind of shaking in my boots. I was like, this acquisition is huge, and it scared me. It was like the biggest acquisition I could have even imagined, right? What if this goes south? And two, they wanted a premium for this thing. They wanted an eight and a half cap. Who pays eight and a half caps, right? And so, but it was a nice high one and we needed to do it and we, and, and we bought it. And as we realized that the customers were changing in self-storage, the customers were demanding more amenities. They were demanding higher end units they were demanding more options, and the customers were driving this change in self-storage. I don't know if they just watched Storage Wars so much and they all expected them to be these big, beautiful, nice Southern California storage facilities, but where we lived, that's not how it looked. But where we lived, it was also being dominated by Southern California's moving up, and this started to just perpetuate, go through the whole entire industry, started to go through all of these different municipalities well, why aren't you building a high-end one? Why aren't you building a nice one? What's that look like? The customers and the economics were driving mass change in the end result in the product. This created other complications and cost to build, right? And it made it a little more intimidating, but it was all a better thing because we got more efficient. The assets became more profitable. We could add on other products. We started doing things like insurance, marketing, and became more advanced. Why that matters to you is because that gave us this edge that we have an industry that's full of these mom and pops that aren't doing anything to run these facilities at all, yet now we have all these tools. We have all this technology. We have all this marketing capability. We now have third parties that are experts at what they do. You don't have to do this all yourself, right? This consolidation is not just bad. We see the numbers, we see all the building and everything, and we think, oh, am I too late? It's easier now to buy, operate, finance a storage facility than it has ever been. Yet, mom and pops are still everywhere. Acquisitions are primed, right? Not only are acquisitions primed, but now we have people that are experts in building world-class facilities. They can help you and they can do it for you. As a beginner, it's actually never been easier to get into self-storage. And as an operator, a large operator, it's never been easy, easier to do roll-ups and get the portfolio effect, buy and turn around. This all comes together today why everybody's talking about storage. It's because of this that we're getting these outsized returns. It's because of this that there's all this opportunity. Now, with all of this coming and all these things available for all of us, 
whether you have no facilities, whether you have 15 facilities and want to get to 200 facilities, doesn't matter. All these tools are available and they're changing and they're getting better. One of the things though that we have to be on top of is the change and watching what the customers are expecting. People putting products out that customers no longer want. Competition, those things have changed. At this conference, you're gonna learn the tools, you're gonna learn the tricks that the big boys use to win. The interesting thing about technology and consolidation is, first of all, when technology comes into an industry, it disrupts it, right? And it always goes to the bigger players. So the REITs, all the big boys get it first. But then the technology trickles down. And the technology has the reverse effect. Instead of allowing the REITs and the big boys to just dominate, the smaller, the mid-sized operators have the tools that they can use to compete in ways with the big boys that they've never had before. Now, this also exasperates the consolidation effect. But the thing is, now it's your opportunity to be a part of it. Now you get to be a part of the consolidation effect that may have been really hard 15 years ago, super hard 15 years ago. Technology and all these things come down. We saw this in the insurance industry for brokerage firms. Brokerage firms, and you see this in every industry, these massive, huge national corporations have these big databases. They have all this information, technology. They have unlimited staff and unlimited resources, and they're buying up the world, and the little guys can't compete. Nobody can do anything, right? And then all of a sudden, that technology, you have third parties that say, well, I can actually build out that system, and I can sell it to smaller, smaller operators. I can actually build that out, and I can sell it to these people. And the, the owners and the operators and the business, they start buying up the technology, and then they're going to the customers, to the tenants, and they're saying, hey, I can compete. I can do everything that they can. And it loses their power. Then it allows us and others like us to really take advantage of this consolidation phase, be a part of it. And uh, when you're looking at self-storage, it is still kind of the new kid on the block. It really is. But at the same time, there's never been more opportunity looking forward in this asset class. And we've never had a situation that individual operators could take advantage and get into the industry and make outsized returns, profit, build wealth, and most importantly, income. Thanks everybody for showing up. It's so good to have you here. We're gonna have a great week. And with that, I'm gonna turn it over to Travis.